Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechtman. The world has changed in many ways since 9-11. One of those clearly has been the way we look upon Muslims, South Asians, and Sikhs. Arguably, those attitudes and prejudices and the degree to which they have become so embedded in the fabric of our national DNA has had a corrosive effect in all of our relationships with people of color and people that might be different than ourselves. Today, since Paris and San Bernardino and the heated political rhetoric that has accompanied it, the depth of those divisions seems to be growing to dangerous proportions. My guest, Deepa Iyer, has studied this, written about it, and works every day to counteract it, a task made much harder today, even than when she wrote her book, We Too Sing America. Deepa Iyer is currently a senior fellow at the Center for Social Inclusion. She is the executive director of South Asian Americans Leading Together, and it is my pleasure to welcome Deepa Iyer here to talk about We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrants shaping our multicultural future. Deepa Iyer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things that, that is profound about this is how much more difficult the situation is today even in uh, the period of time that you wrote this book? Yes. Um, one of the ways in which I think we can look at what's happening today is through some historical context, which I try to provide in the book. And I think there's a misperception often that the backlash towards communities who have been scapegoated for, for what happened on 9-11 was limited in scope and time to perhaps the months and the year or so after 9-11. But as I write in my book, that's really not true. And I catalog... Uh, different ways in which these communities have been scapegoated, whether it's in the media, whether it's through government policies, or whether it's through uh, hate violence over the last five years in particular. So we have seen this um, over the last 15 years, definitely ramping up over the past five years. But as you mentioned in the introduction, it is in a way ramping up again in some very dangerous uh, ways in the last six weeks. And arguably, it's ramping up in ways that are even more dangerous than it might have been the first mm-hmm. time around in the post-9-11 world, because what's gone on for the, in these intervening years is a sense of permission, almost, to allow right. this kind of prejudice to exist, and the degree to which it has become so corrosive in so many relationships. That's absolutely right. I think that what is happening now in America is sort of a mainstreaming of Islamophobia and xenophobia. It existed in different ways, as I mentioned, over the last 15 years, but you're now seeing it more in the mainstream where we have political candidates talking about Muslim communities in particular uh, in a way that is very divisive, that is scapegoating and profiling and targeting them through words and even the endorsement of policies that profile these communities. You're seeing anti-immigrant sentiment being voiced around the country as well. So there has been a mainstreaming of these attitudes. um, But at the same time, I do think that within many communities around the country, um, Americans have lost their appetite for this sort of overt Islamophobia. And we are seeing ways in which people are standing up. They're speaking out. And and I think we're at a crossroads in our country uh, to really think about which direction we're heading in. Do we want to be a country that 
builds an inclusive democracy where people feel safe, where they feel welcomed, regardless of what their background is, what their faith is, or are we going in a different direction? And I'm still very hopeful that you know we are heading in the direction of being uh, a welcoming, inclusive democracy. What is it that makes you hopeful about it when you look at what's going on in this country, but also when you look even in the broader context of what's going on in the rest of the world? A few things. I think, first of all, many people are starting to develop some critical analysis and framework to better understand the rhetoric that we're hearing and the policies that are being supported. So I think that people are understanding, for example, to give one example of how we uh, even use legal language and words to describe acts of terrorism. Um, For example, we know that when someone who happens to be South Asian, Muslim, or Arab commits a heinous act of violence, it's usually branded as an act of terrorism. And there is a lot of racial coding that comes with that. For example, we assume that the communities that the uh, attackers in San Bernardino um, or in Paris come from are also suspicious and should be treated with suspicion. But that sort of same assumption of guilt is not afforded to other types of violent offenders. In particular, people have pointed to, for example, Dylan Roof, um, who was the the, the young man who uh, committed the atrocious crime in a black church in Charleston, or Wade Michael Page, a white supremacist whom I write about in my book, who committed an act of hate violence that killed six people at a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. We, we don't actually afford the same assumption of guilt to, say, all white Christian males in this country that we do to Muslims, South Asians, and Arabs. But I think that people are developing a more critical analysis to understand the distinction and also why we don't. So that's one thing. Another is that I do think that in interfaith communities, um, even with young people, we are seeing examples of people saying, no, not in our backyard, not in our campus not in our communities. We don't stand for this type of Islamophobia and xenophobia. So you're seeing strong public statements coming out from allies, from policymakers, from even uh, campus administrators about the importance of creating a, an inclusive and welcoming environment. So those two things give me hope, even though I absolutely agree with you that the times are really dark now, and they remind me and many others of the, the times that we had right after 9-11. One of the things that you seem to say that gives you hope really is the generational aspect of this more than anything Mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. That's right. So in the book in particular, I focus on the perspectives of young people who are Sikh, Arab, Muslim, and South Asian immigrants who are really standing up in their communities to be leaders and bridge builders. So for example, um, there's a story of a young Kurdish Muslim refugee woman named Drust in Tennessee, where that particular community there, the Muslim community there, has been enduring a long um, backlash of uh, people saying that a mosque should not be constructed in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. There have been mosques that have been vandalized in Murfreesboro, as well as in Nashville. There has been the introduction of laws in the state legislature that actually target Muslims and refugees. But people like Drust, the young woman I mentioned, are part of a group of young people who are saying that they actually have other policy solutions and they have other media narratives and they are disrupting sort of the ways in which we think about these issues at all. 
So I, I really do think that people like her and others that I look at at the book are, as you mentioned, from a generational standpoint, um, America's new leaders. And looking to them gives me and others hope as well. There is the assumption, though, in, in what you're saying, that, that this kind of attitude, both the positive and the negative, exists in the vacuum of, of racial attitudes. And in fact, mm-hmm. it is part of a much larger context of, cha- of demographic change and of social change in the country that also is so much a part of what we're dealing with. That's right. So I think that it's important that we look at how these communities in particular are both being targeted, but also how they're shaping America as our racial demographics shift. Uh, So by 2043, our country will become one in which people of color will comprise the majority population in this country. And so it's very important that uh, communities of color, white allies, immigrants, um, begin to build a common cause and understanding with each other, that we begin to develop our political and economic and cultural power in America. So I do think that that is something that we need to pay attention to and be vigilant about. But right now what we're seeing and what we've been seeing over the past 15 years um, are these three forces that have come together, racism and racial anxiety at these changing demographics, as well as anti-immigrant sentiment and, and Islamophobia that have really come together to uh, become mainstreamed in our politics and our rhetoric uh, and stand to thwart many of the progress that we can make as we move towards a country that is racially diverse. And so that is why I think we are at that crossroads again. We have an opportunity to reshape the ways in which we live, to reshape our policies and our laws and institutions from the perspective of racial equity. And whether we are up to the task is really what I think each of us needs to be thinking about right now. I suppose what's counterintuitive about it is that being at the very crossroads has inherent in that point this kind of us versus them or differences as, as really the core of, of where we are. And, and getting past that point is so difficult. Well, I think that in America, we've always othered people, marginalized different sets of people, primarily people of color or immigrants, Native Americans. We've, we kind of have that built into our DNA of doing this us versus them. And that shows up in the ways that we look at our policies, our economic policies, our immigration policies, our um, education policies, health care. If you look at any of these policies or institutions, there is a sense that people of color or people who don't speak English well or immigrants are always um, disadvantaged in some way. And so part of, I think, our work is not just to change the rhetoric and the narrative from a cultural standpoint, but to actually also focus in on eliminating the systemic disparities that we see in almost all arenas when it comes to communities of color. That is going to be just as important as disrupting the media narrative or changing the cultural uh, narrative or even the one-on-one interactions that we have with each other. How do we begin to change that cultural narrative? Well, I think that one of the first things we need to do is to have a better understanding of the climate that we're in right now. So specifically with respect to the post-9-11 environment, I write in the book about how many Americans have a knowledge gap when it comes to understanding what has been happening over the last 15 years. Many of us don't know about the national security and immigration policies that our government 
has implemented that actually profile and target people based on their national origin or their faith. And when I speak around the country and I talk about these policies, many many audience members are actually aghast when they understand and hear exactly the scope and intent of some of the policies that have been put into place. One in particular is called special registration. It was put into place in 2003, and it required men who were aged 16 years and older from 26 countries, all Muslim-majority countries in South Asia and the Middle East, to report to local immigration authorities in this country. About 30,000 men complied with this initiative, Uh, 13,000 were deported, and there were no national security uh, gaps or um, individuals who committed national security, um, anything against our national security, no one was found out. And yet this particular program devastated our communities and separated families and changed our neighborhoods in many ways. So I think that one way we can actually uh, begin to shift the cultural narrative is to have a better understanding grounded in facts and data and stories about what has been happening in post-9-11 America. To what extent is it worthwhile to look at what's happening in other places in the world in terms of these same issues? I think it is very instructive to look at what's happening in Europe in particular when you look at France or the United Kingdom, where there are large numbers of immigrants and refugees, where you have Muslim, South Asian, Arab communities living there. How are they being treated? How are those countries implementing national security or counterterrorism goals in a way that might profile these communities? And unfortunately, that's happening across the world. Um, in Europe, as well as the United States, there has been this um, this focus on national security to the point that we are no, no longer respecting people's civil liberties or their civil rights. We are foregoing those fundamental ideals in, in, in terms of saying, well, we need to do that. We need to implement these policies because of our national security. So I think that that is happening. That's the other piece that's happening, which is a trend, are um, anti-immigrant sentiments, anti-refugee sentiments around the world. So you're seeing, again, more groups, organized groups, both in the U.S. as well as in parts of Europe, who are actually saying, no, we need to close our borders, we need to return our country to sort of a a pure, you know, white Judeo-Christian citizen model that it used to be. And so we are seeing the growth of these organized hate groups, especially in the United States, uh, but in other parts of the world as well. So I think that we have a lot to learn from how things are happening in Europe. But, you know, I do think that there are initiatives that we can be putting into place here from a policy standpoint as well that can really shift the ways in which governments are dealing with um, immigrants and communities of color and refugees. Talk about what's different since the refugee issue has moved into such prominence, because these issues that we've been talking about certainly have been there in the post-9-11 right. world with respect to South Asians and Arabs and Muslims, etc. The refugee crisis has, has amped this up in some profound mm-hmm. ways. What impact has that had, and how has that problem been perceived among mm-hmm. South Asians and Arabs and Muslims? 
Well, part of why I think we are seeing the backlash, for example, to Syrian refugees in light of what happened in Paris is also because we're in a presidential political cycle here in the United States. And so we have seen, as you know, Republican governors, um, those who are running for the presidency from the GOP party, really take this on as sort of a banner issue. And so that's propelled the climate that, as you mentioned, we've been in for quite some time to the headlines of newspapers, and um, it's become more center stage. But the impact that it's having in our communities is really continuing to exacerbate this feeling that we are under suspicion, that we are not wanted, that we are um, seen as threats to this country, even as we are living, studying, working, contributing to our communities every single day and have been for, for decades, for centuries. So the the ways in which the rhetoric has shifted since Paris and obviously since California has been to, again, um, shine a spotlight on these communities and see them as national security threats. So we're seeing examples of uh, people who are being removed off of airplanes because other passengers don't feel comfortable with them. We are seeing examples of students who are including Muslim women who wear the hijab who are being harassed and even assaulted. We're seeing mosques being firebombed. So these sorts of ways in which the, the rhetoric actually continues to perpetuate a climate where these things become, as you, you mentioned the word permissive, um, these, these sorts of atrocious acts become permissible in a climate where we have policy leaders and elected officials and those running for office using language that is dangerous and irresponsible. To what extent is this a problem that's going to get solved in part from a top-down approach? How, is, how important is it for leaders, national leaders, local leaders, to really be key components in addressing these issues as opposed to it being just a grassroots effort? I think it has to be both. Um, words obviously have impact, and when we hear, for example, the president and other leading members of the political parties or even our policymakers who sit on our city councils around the country say words such as we should not be branding all Muslim Arab South Asian communities as terrorists. We should not be looking at them as national security threats. We should not be scapegoating them. When we hear language like that, it does help because it sets a different tone for our country. It sets a different climate in our country. Um, and, and I think that we are not seeing enough of that. There are pockets where we're seeing it, but we need those messages to be said over and over again consistently because the drumbeat on the other side is quite strong. It's almost every single day where we hear about uh, people who are in power actually scapegoating our communities. So we need to hear more statements uh, that, that say the opposite and that give us a different frame for understanding how our country is right now. And on the grassroots level, people are mobilizing. You know, we have seen, for example, in the South Asian Arab Muslim and Sikh communities over the past 15 years, tremendous community infrastructure has been built. People are mobilized. Students are mobilized and aware. And we also have allies in black, Latino, white communities who are standing up for us, interfaith communities who are standing up for us. So I think it's, it has to be both. Um, but the real question here is, um, we need everybody to kind of be on the same page and talking about the ideals that our country believes in and the direction that we should be headed in. To what extent do we need to redefine those ideals? 
I think that we need to really take stock of what we mean when we talk about civil rights and civil liberties. I think that those concepts have uh, not been interrogated in ways that they should be, especially when we have the national security framework that we hear more. And so what does it mean when you have a country that fears for the security and safety of its residents and its citizens? Does it mean that we are going to forgo people's civil rights? Or can we come up with more, uh, more effective, better alternatives so that we're not actually eliminating the rights of people as we are preserving our national security. So I think that particular concept of civil rights and civil liberties needs to be lifted up more. We hardly hear it because the drumbeat, again, of national security and safety is what we hear the most. That is the primary narrative in this country. So to be able to actually talk about uh, starting from the standpoint of civil rights and human rights is, I think, a place where we could actually do some reshaping and interrogating and changing. Of course, part of the problem of all this is that it is so subject to external events, as we've seen Mm -hmm. from the events of the past couple of weeks and as we talked about at the outset. That's true, um, but I also think that that's going to happen no matter what. You know, we are always going to be confronting crises in terms of the economy, immigration, national security. That's just part and parcel of what the world is these days. But I think that instead of being reactive, so for example, with the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, the the reaction to what happened in Paris was, oh, well, let's just not let the Syrian refugees in. That's a very reactive approach that's not really grounded in understanding the context of what's happening uh, in terms of the refugee crisis. It's not grounded in terms of understanding what the refugee resettlement process is like in the United States. So we, we have these kind of reactive responses and instead of two external events. But I think that if we could pause, take stock of understanding what the situation is, what the process is, then we might have different uh, responses. I think that in Canada, it seems like there is a different response to Syrian refugees, for example. So it can be done. Um, I think that we need to push ourselves more, push our elected leaders more to find those uh, alternative responses rather than the reactionary ones that we've been seeing over the past six weeks. Deepa Iyer, her book is We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multicultural Future. Deepa, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you.